17, 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All right, good morning. How are we doing this morning? It's good to see you all, and it's glad to hear both of you are doing okay. Uh, welcome to Genesis. Uh, what a great morning to be together. If you're a guest, we're, we're really thankful that you're here. I'm actually starting my sermon with a couple announcements, but they are big things, okay? So go back 16 years when we planted Genesis. One of the things we said is that we want to be a church that is in this city, for this city, make a difference because of the kingdom of God in this city. We didn't want to be a church that just met on Sunday mornings and did our thing, and the rest of the city wasn't even aware we were here. We felt like it was important for us to be highly involved in the stuff that happened in the city. This is our DNA. This is who we are. We love that you show up on Sunday morning. We hope you will come. We hope that you will bring friends. If you're guests, we are so thankful you were here. But what we really are hoping is that our discipleship, our being followers of Jesus, will, be so, will so shape us that we're doing all we can to love this city and share Jesus in the city, okay? And so the next two weekends, we have two major events. These events used to be separated by a month, but the city changed their way of doing things, and now they end up on back-to-back weekends. We have no control, but we want to do them both really well. And so the first is this next weekend is, is Eureka Days. 
Eureka Days is the big, you know, fall festival, all kinds of stuff going on, carnivals. And, and we have two ways that we are really involved in the city, uh, with, with loving the city here and serving the city. First is on Saturday morning, we have the Eureka Days Parade. The parade is, is a big parade, goes right down Central Avenue if you've never been to it. And from our first year, from, from the year we launched this Genesis Church until this year, with the exception of the year that they had to cancel because of COVID, we have always been the last float in the parade, okay? Uh, which is a kind of an interesting place, right? We are the tail. We are the, the end of the whole thing. When people see us go by, uh, they go, oh, the parade's over. But the reason we are the last float in the parade is because our, um, our float is actually a flatbed trailer filled with, it has a whole bunch of uh, trash cans on it, and what we do is our crew, you all, we go through the crowd and, and down the street and we clean up the parade route as we go through. Um, it has been uh, something that has blessed the city. We've actually received accolades from the city. Uh, you, you have no idea how much goodwill with like the parks department and the city we get because we take this moment and do that. Now, I promise, those of you who were last year, I promise, I've said we're always the last float in the parade. I promise this year, that if it lines up like it did last year, we will make sure we are not the last float, that that giant bubble bus will go behind us and they will be last. Because we went behind the bubble bus last year and it was insane, okay? Uh, we were all soaked with bubble suds when we were done. But uh, it's a great way for us to serve and love the city. The other thing next, next weekend uh, during Eureka Days is that we have a chance to serve the city by having a kids being part of the kids' corner on the Sunday activities. And so they, there's time slots to fill and things to do there. Uh, Genesis Kids can give you more information if you'd like to help with that. But we need people to fill time slots and just hang out. We'll have a craft or a game or something for kids to do when they show up as part of Eureka Days on Sunday. But it's also a way to have conversations with parents, with other people who show up there uh, to um, just connect with them. All right, so that's next weekend. And lovingly, let me say, if you can at all possibly be there, we need you there. Then the next weekend, do, do, do y'all realize we have a really amazing high school football team in our city? <laughs> they're 5-0, oh, y'all. and they're, they're leaving teams leaving with their head down going, man, those guys killed us. They have the best offensive line in America, okay? Just so you know. For those of you who don't know, if you're guessing with us, my son is one of the players, okay? Uh, <clears throat> but uh, they, they're, they're great. But uh, the other thing we've been doing since our get-go is loving the school, uh, homecoming, and I'm one of these parents this year, okay? When we started, I wasn't. But homecoming weekend, uh, parents want to be able to see their kids and be part of the experience. So if they're, if they're, you know, with the band or if they're on the football field or if they're a cheerleader or if they're just a student who's part of the homecoming stuff. But the flip side of that is most of the time when you look at, like, the concession stand, it's parents who have to volunteer. And so for the last 16 years... We have taken over, Genesis Church takes over um, homecoming night concession stand duty. We, we fill the concession stand and we work it. And so again, we need about 20 to 25 people, all right? And so we would love for you to come hang out. Both of these events are really fun. It's a great way to get to know people if you're new with us. It's a great way to rub elbows. But it's also, one, both of these are wonderful ways that we love our city. And yes, both of these give us opportunities to build relationships so we can share Jesus with people. So here's what I need you to do. There's a QR code up here, or there's a QR code in your green folder. You got your green folder? Let me see them. 
All right, I see a few of them. All right, if you don't get one of these when you come in, you should grab one. Has all of our information, that way you can know what's going on. From the green folder, there's two ways to sign up for both of these events. We need, kind of need to start doing head counts so that if we're hurting, we know to keep making pleas and bug y'all because we can't show up to either one of these events with like five people. It will be a disaster. We need you to, to see this as part of being part of our church, okay? Uh, and so you can sign up by scanning the code. It will take you right to a spot where you can find the event, click on it, and you can register right there. Or you can tear off the side sheet on the, the green folder and just drop that in the offering at the end of the service, uh, and then we will get you signed up that way. So those are two ways we sign up. Big stuff, they are important for us, and, and we hope that um, those of us, those of you who are really bought in and part of Genesis will serve with us at one or both of these. And those of you who are new, we want to welcome you. It'd be, I'm telling you, if you've been coming for a couple of weeks and you're just like, I need to get to know some people, these two events are about as, as amazing as it gets to rub elbows and just hang out with some people and get to know some folks in our church, all right? So there you go. That's my, that's my stick, but it fits with our, our sermon series. We're working through this amazing book that is called the book of Acts in the New Testament. We preach, in Genesis, our tendency is to preach right through books of the Bible. And we were preaching this book, going through it kind of verse by verse, line by line, talking about this amazing story. This is the story of the advance of that one gospel we just sang about, the victory of that gospel. That the gospel goes forth, and it, it cannot be thwarted, it cannot be defeated. It is going to be victorious, and the gospel is going to reach every tribe, every nation, every people. And when the story begins... Jesus had just died and risen again. There's 120 believers in Jerusalem. By the time we get to the end of Acts, the, the gospel has been planted in every major city in the Roman Empire. And, and it is spreading like wildfire so that, it, like in the phrase that says, these people are turning the world upside down, they're not mistaken. That, that the gospel's already disrupting the world as people are coming to faith in Jesus and having their whole lives reoriented around Christ as their true king. It's a beautiful thing. And this is what we hope here in our city, that we will, as we share Jesus with people, people will hear the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of forgiven sins, the hope of, of a Christ who died for them and gave his life and then rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And that people will see the beauty of Christ. They will run to him and trust and believe in him. And they will have their lives reoriented towards Christ as their king. And when, he, when God does that, he makes us a people together. And as a people who love Jesus, we will live for the good of the city, but we will live countercultural to the world around us. And, and that's what's going on. And what we find is, in, at this point where we're at in Acts 17, this dude named Paul has been traveling around the world, <clears throat> around the, 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 especially, he has made his way through modern-day Turkey and is now in uh, Greece, modern-day Greece, Macedonia. Previously, and we have a map up here, I forgot to bring my handy-dandy little laser pointer up here this morning. Oh, here, here it comes. Like, our guys are ready. Look at that. Cheer well for them because there's a group of, group of people back here at this table who run all of our stuff on Sunday morning. They're heroes, guys. They, they work so hard. I'm so thankful for them. Uh, they've already bailed us out of two messes this morning, to be honest with you. And there's one of them. All right, so I got my handy-dandy little laser pointer. Uh, they hopped on a boat here in Asia when they had this thing called the Macedonian Call. This, the main character of the story, Paul, had this vision of a Macedonian man crying out. So, so Macedonia is over here. It is modern-day Greece. It is part of the Greek Empire. This is where Alexander the Great was born. 
his father Philip, the city of Philippi, the first city they went to, which is up here, uh, the city of Philippi is named after uh, Philip the Great, who is the father of Alexander the Great, this, these great kings who created this massive empire that we know as the Greek period, okay? And so up here in Macedonia, they had gone first to Philippi, which is right there where my laser pointer is. And after getting arrested and thrown in prison, we talked about this last week, Paul and Silas are in jail. So previously in Acts, they were in a city. Paul preached, he got arrested, he got thrown in jail for preaching Jesus. He and Silas in jail, instead of complaining and whining, are singing hymns and praising God and praying. God sends an earthquake, and what happens is that, that their public witness, their joy in the darkest time, the beauty of the gospel in their lives, they are able to lead a, a, this jailer who had previously been part of beating them up, and instead of just, just treating him with scorn and, and, and resentment, they loved him and actually saved his life. And they were able to lead he and his whole family. And so now there's a church in Philippi. But after this harassment, they, they realize that they need to leave. And so they, what they do is you can see, it's, I know it's a really long way away. You can look at like Google search, Paul's second missionary journey. You can pull up your own little map that looks just like this. It will be at the top of your feed. Um, but but you, you get right this area over here, these two cities that start with A. They're major cities. The text deals with Paul going through them very quickly. I believe that the text is telling us that Paul did go through there and preach the gospel. But more than likely, the way what Luke says is there, wasn't, there weren't Jewish settlements. Paul is preaching to both Greeks and Jews, but he starts in synagogues. And so he preaches Christ, but he moves on to the city of Thessalonica. It's right here in, in one of these little nooks and crannies right there. You see these little bays, okay? It is at the top of the Aegean Sea, and... and the city of Thessalonica is a major, a major Macedonian, major Greek city. Very large in population, well over 200,000 people, which for cities at this point in time is fairly significant. Uh, it is at the north end of the sea, and therefore it is a seaport. So a lot of trade, a lot of things coming in by sea, but it also has the most significant road of its day passes right to the north of it. And it goes, it's a road that goes like around some of this stuff and ends up running east to west all the way to Rome. And so the combination of this makes it a wealthy city of trade. Lots of people, wealthy, and it had also become the capital of Macedonia. And Paul comes to this town, and what we find is that Paul has a rhythm of the way he does ministry. Back on August 21st, in fact, if you're hanging out with us, and you're actually in this study with us, you're, you're like, hey, I'm gonna listen to preaching, and you weren't here on August 21st, you can get all of our sermons online, you can podcast them, you can get them in, uh, uh, from our website. The sermon on August 21st, I gave a biography where I explained the missionary methods of Paul. And I can't stop every week and go over that again, but what Paul does, briefly, what Paul does, so I would challenge you to go listen to that sermon just to understand what Paul is doing. But what he does in every city is he comes in town, he first goes and finds the Jewish people, preaches Christ in the synagogue. We see that here. He normally gets himself in trouble and leaves there and he will do some preaching in the secular marketplace where he's preaching now to Greeks. And what will happen is he will see people from both Jewish background, religious people who grew up with the law of God and the Old Testament, the whole story of like they were religiously oriented, uh, oriented people who come to faith and secular, more secular Greek thinking people who come to faith in Jesus. And he plants a church. He starts a community of faith. So, so when you think church, when we're in Acts, 
The church is not a building, it's not a structure, it's people who come together, who are in, like they, they go, we believe in Jesus, we do it together. But it was radical, unbelievably radical for Greeks and Jews to be in a community of faith together. Yet Paul does not plant two churches, he doesn't start a Greek church and a, Roman, a Jewish church, he brings them together, they become one community of faith by this time, he's normally getting beat up, harassed, thrown in prison, and so he leaves and goes to the next city. This is exactly what happens in Thessalonica. He comes in, he preaches Christ. Uh, as he preaches Christ, uh, people believe. He starts in the synagogue. We're told he preached over three Sabbaths, but in, there's actually a New Testament, two New Testament books where Paul, the one who preaches, writes letters back to the church in this city. We call those books First and Second Thessalonians. And in First Thessalonians, Paul helps us understand he was there way more than three weeks. I think what we're being told by Luke is he had opportunities on three different Sabbaths to be the preacher. And he stood up and he preached. And we'll talk more about what happened in his preaching in a few minutes, but he preached Christ. He made much of Jesus. And people came to believe. And what we're told is the people who came to believe included Jewish people who believed. It includes what he calls devout Greeks. These are people who were Gentiles. They were not Jewish in their background and story. But there was this movement that was happening in the world at this point in time where a lot of the people who grew up with the pantheon of Greek gods and the idea of fate were so frustrated with lives that they had no control, that they had these insane gods that ruled their lives and their belief system. And all of a sudden, the one true God that was being given to them by the story coming from Jews was very compelling. And so you have people who are seeking the one true God. Now, th there are people who are part of this crew. They're, gen they're Greeks. But they are moving towards the spirituality and the, the, the faith of the scriptures. And now they hear about Jesus, they go, oh, I get it. This is the goal of it. I believe. And we're also told some of the leading women of the city. History tells us that the Greeks were very open to female leadership. And so we're probably talking about women who were in governmental roles, who had, had secular marketplace, like, and, and, and there is influence in who they are. And so what happens is, these, two, these three groups are identified. You have a church that is Jewish and Gentile that is made up. But what happens is that <clears throat> this group of Jews gets really jealous of what Paul is preaching and how it goes. And so they go to try to find him. And this guy, Jason, we know nothing else about this Jason. This is like, he is not like Jason and the Argonauts. This is not the right guy, okay? Different Jason. But this Greek Jason has a home. He probably is a more wealthy person who has a home that is probably the meeting place for the church. Church didn't have buildings. And he is probably, he is housing Paul and his band of brothers who are on this trip. So Paul and Silas get mentioned, but we already know there's multiple other people who are traveling. Jason has probably put them in his house. And so these Jews grab some, the text calls them here. Look, look at what it says here in verse, um, uh, verse five. They were jealous taking some men of the rabble. Don't you love that phrase? Men of the rabble. Sounds like a good crew, like a good band name. We're the men of the rabble, all right? Um, the men of rabble, this is referring to just people who hung out in the city, who were loafers, who were lazy, who were thieves. I mean, so all of a sudden the religious people are going and finding the lowlifes of the city. They get them agitated, stirred up, and start a riot or bring a mob 
to Jason's house to try to get Paul and Silas with the goal of getting Paul and Silas pulled into the mob and, and maybe getting beaten up and killed. But they're not there for some reason. We don't know why, but they grab the homeowner, bring him out, rough him up, take him before the city and go, and, and, and look at what the text says. I love this. Because there is a level of truth and a le- level of uh, uh, irony in what they say. Look at what they say in verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. <clears throat> now, now let, let's just examine that phrase. Paul and Silas, the preaching of the gospel does turn the world upside down. There is a sense in which where, where I want to go this morning is to tell you that when you hear the gospel, it is either going to revolutionize you or harden you. Those are the options. You're either going to put up your hand and say, I don't really want to believe this, and you're going to push yourself away, and God, through the preaching of the word, is actually going to harden your heart, or the Holy Spirit is going to explode in your life, and it's going to turn your world upside down. That Jesus is, that's the goal, for Jesus to turn your world upside down. But what's ironic about this is they're like, everywhere these guys show up, there's like riots and problems and all this sort of stuff. And what's funny is, who is it that's causing all these riots and problems wherever Paul and Silas show up? It's not Paul and Silas. It's these guys who are making the accusations are the ones who cause all the disruptions, all the agitations. Paul and Silas are just loving people, caring for them, uh, being involved, seeing people come to faith in Jesus, delivering demon-possessed, like their work is beautiful and rich, Their presence in a place is going to be for the good of that city. It really is. Yet, people who don't believe see it as a threat. What is turning the world upside down at this point in time, or what is agitating and causing all the problems, is not the preaching of Paul and Silas. It is the people who so passionately oppose what they're doing that they're willing to start riots and then accuse Paul and Silas as the reason the riots are happening. Listen, that is real in the world. It it may be more real here. One of the things that we need to hear, followers of Jesus, especially those of you who are parents or those of you who are teenagers, is that there is a growing animosity towards the gospel and just holding to that which is truth in the scripture, we're going to be more and more seen as people who are the troublemakers. Not because we're actually causing riots and because we're you know, tearing things down and creating situations where we're burning the city down, but because our preaching is, and, and, and the, the gospel is such a threat to the idols of a place that people will respond with so much anger that it turns ugly. Now, we should never be the ones that causes it to turn ugly, but we will be accused of it if we're faithful. And that's Okay. That's okay, because the gospel will transform the lives of people who believe. And then they go on to accuse them of denying Caesar because there is a different king. And again, what we see in the writings of the New Testament from Paul is this. Honor the authorities that are above you. You never see the New Testament saying, because you're a Christian, cast off your citizenship, rebel against the country, live. No, we're to live as long as Caesar does not call me 
to deny my faith and do things that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus, we are called to submit and love the government authorities, to pray for the government, to, to, to lift them up, to pay our taxes, all those sorts of things. Yet, we are people who have a different and better king. Our allegiance is not to Caesar, it's to Jesus. So in both cases, what these people say, there is some truth to it, yet in both cases, it's ironic because what they say isn't really the whole truth, and for all of church history, we need to know that we are going to live in that tension. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered together this morning who are under the threat of somebody forming a mob, creating a riot, riot storming the church, killing the pastor, uh, arresting people, causing, and they will blame it on these people who are doing this horrible thing of loving the, the broken, caring for the sick, uh, and, and making a difference in their world. Yet the gospel is going to confront the culture and is going to make it angry when people don't believe. And that's what happens here. Now, as you're driving through the countryside, there's all kinds of crazy church names, okay? All kinds of crazy church names. But one of the names you will pass, especially, you'll see this as you're, you know, you're driving around these roads and you'll pass these little churches here, little churches there, and some of them have just interesting names. Um, as you drive between Bolivar and Branson, Missouri, you pass the, are you ready for this, the Halfway Baptist Church? Like, hey, I want to join it. I'm Halfway Baptist. Now, it's called Halfway Baptist Church because it is in the city of Halfway, Missouri, which is halfway between Branson and, uh, not Branson, Buffalo and Bolivar, those two cities. All right, halfway Missouri. But there's interesting names. But every once in a while, you'll be cruising along the countryside, and you will pass a church, a church that says the Berean Baptist Church or the Berean Bible Church, and you'll see like a Berean. That's a weird, weird name. Why is it called the Berean Church? And it's never in the town of Berea. There's, I don't know of any Bereas. But people love the name Berean Baptist or Berean Bible or Berean Church. And the reason is because of our story, the second half of our story this morning. Because when Paul is thrown and leaves Thessalonica because Jason's been harassed and he pays, he pays his tribute, he pays his bail to kind of get them off back and go away, Paul leaves and, and, and travels about 50 miles towards the mountains and ends up in this town of Berea, which is another important trade route that's at the base of the mountains. Now, this city is more agricultural. It is more um, rooted in, in the agriculture and, and the produce, like the things that are um, made on the mountains, things like, you know, the, the, the grapes and, and, and goods that would be more, uh, that terrain would come down, stuff from the valley would come there, and, and trade would happen as more agricultural. But Berea is an, another important city. They find another synagogue, and Paul preaches the gospel to this but they, there is something that is beautiful that is said here. Look at it in verse 11. It says, now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were more noble. There is something about what is being said here that is so beautiful that there are even churches who name their name after this moment. And here's my challenge. Here's the goal this morning. I want us to not change our name. We're Genesis Church. I love our name. Yet, I want us to be a church that is very Berean and not Thessalonian. So I have a really weird sermon this morning that is about sermons. I want to preach to you about preaching. I want to talk to you about what this text, because I think the author, Luke, who is writing in story form this beautiful story of the gospel, 
is showing us two cities and how groups of people who had religious background, had religious heritage, these Jewish people in both towns, responded to Paul's proclamation of Jesus. And how they responded says a lot about them. We want to be Berean, not Thessalonian, in the way we respond to preaching. And so I, I basically just, for the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about the preaching of the gospel, the preaching that happens here on every Sunday morning, the rhythmic, uh, regular coming together, and the fact that um, somebody, often me, but often other people, will stand up and open the scriptures and preach to you. I want to talk to you about our role. What are, what are we responsible to make sure we do? And then I want to talk to you about your role as you come in here on any given Sunday and participate in any given sermon and interact with any given preaching moment. And my challenge is that we become very Berean in the way we do this. And so first of all, let's talk about the preacher's role. Preacher's role. It, it, it seems like a really weird idea um, uh, for God to say, all right, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reach the world, and what we're gonna, the way we're going to do this is we're going to have some dude, we're going to sing a few songs, and then we're going to have some guy show up, and he's going to talk for a really long time. And as he talks for a really long time, uh, that is going to be the way that God reaches the hearts of people through the preaching of, of, of the scriptures, that preaching is going to become central. And there have been points in history where preaching was pulled away. The centrality of the pulpit, the preaching ministry of the church was kind of moved to the side and other things were placed in the center. Uh, in some churches, they will put like the, the, the act of taking communion as central. And I believe that communion, the act of taking the Lord's Supper is vital. But it was the Puritans who then moved the pulpit, and we don't have a pulpit, but they put the pulpit right back in the middle of the stage. And the Puritans had this giant, they always like big pulpits. I was thinking about this this morning, you know, I kind of feel uncomfortable. Uh, people look at me and say, hey, you're out of shape. Round is a shape, okay? And I'm like, you know, maybe if I got a big pulpit, it would hide this. I could just stand behind it and feel a lot more comfortable with myself because all you can see is from here up. But uh, <clears throat> they, they like big pulpits. Now, I don't think a big pulpit is necessary. But what they were doing is by having a big pulpit and putting it on the center of the stage is they're saying what is central in our sermon service is what's central in the New Testament, which is the preaching of the gospel. It feels weird. Why would God in heaven not say, you know, here's what we're going to do is I'm going to make miracles the center stage of thing. Why not make, like, like for us, maybe, maybe what we ought to do is shorten the sermon. We ought to make things a lot simple, simpler. Not really deal with, but, but preach like life goals. Why not do TED Talks? Let's just move the direction of TED Talks, right? For maybe 10 minutes, come up here and give you a, a sweet life lesson. What if we added a smoke machine? That would be really cool. Every once in a while, we, we get people who, who will come down from the rafters and jump in or, or do magic tricks. Or Man, what if we got somebody who was a comedian? He was really, really funny week after week. And he just, we all laughed and we all felt, why not? Doesn't that seem like a better way to go about what we're doing week after week? Really, we're gonna come in here, sing a few songs, and then listen to somebody talk to us for a really long time, that's the way to go. Yet, yet God in his wisdom has ordained that the way he is going to reach people primarily and pour the gospel into his people is through the rhythmic preaching of the scriptures by, by men of God who wrestle. So, so here's, let me, let me get rid of an idea for you, okay? Let me peel back a little of this guy's heart. Every week I love this and I hate it. 
I do not get up here because I'm excited to stand in front of you because I think what I have to say is the most important thing in the world. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you. Almost every Friday is brutal for me. What happens in the rhythm is during the week I'm studying the scripture. I love that. I am into it. I, and on Friday, I have to take what I've studied and say, but Lord, what do I now say to these people? And there is a point every Friday where I go, I got nothing. I don't, I don't want to do this. I, I'm not that funny. I want to be. I want y'all to laugh and feel good. I, I know I'm going to get up there. I'm going to bear my soul. I'm going to plead with you that Jesus is all you need. And I know that I'm going to do that and, and I'm not looking for anything. Just I know that for me in my humanity, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to walk over here and a few people will wave at me and walk by. And, and hopefully you don't walk by and do what one lady did to her pastor when she walked by and said, Pastor, I really do believe that every sermon you preach is a little better than the next one. There's a weight to this. The other guys who have jumped into preaching ministry will echo this. That it's like, yes, I'm excited about preaching. Yes, I, oh, snap, this is the week I got to preach. This is awful. I'm bearing the weight of this. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. Like, there is a rhythm and a weight to this. It would be way easier for me to show a video, say a few words, and get off the stage. Yet, what we see are in Scripture things like this. Look at first, uh, read this with me up on the screen, I think. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand of signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, you, you got to catch what he's saying. He's saying, if you go to Jews, they're going to tell you that if you want to draw a crowd and get people excited, here's what you need to do. You need to do these sacraments and these, these rituals, and you need to call people to, to fidelity, and, and there's a certain way to draw a Jewish crowd. And he says, if you want to get Greeks, you've got to get them laughing and get them entertained. You've got to find these amazing orators who, who give TED Talks. That's what it is. And through wisdom, and here's what he says, those processes actually leave people thinking they're smart and they don't see their own sinfulness and brokenness. And here comes Paul saying, I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't come with you with crazy speech. I didn't come trying to be real fancy. And I didn't act like the other speakers. What I did is I stood up week after week and I preached Christ from the scriptures. And it is the way that God has chosen to rescue and redeem people and then to help them understand what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so what we see here in this story is amazing because Paul goes into town and Luke is just telling us this is what he did everywhere. It's not a one-time event. What he tells us Paul did in Thessalonians is connected to what he does in Berea. He does the same thing. But Paul, in, in, in Thessalonians, Luke, the author, tells us exactly what Paul did. And he tells us what this rhythm and beauty of the preaching ought to look like and how the gospel preaching ought to be connected with things. And so here's what he says. There are four things that the preacher must do that when we are, are here, like, when, when anybody who stands up here and preaches, we have this preaching cohort. We take them through it. The men who preach have gone through this. It is really rigorous. 
We push really hard to make sure these four things happen with anybody who stands up here. They're the four things that we see Paul doing right here. Okay? And that, that we are faithful to be true to what the commission of preaching is supposed to look like. And the first thing we see Paul doing, first thing that, that, that the preacher must do is he must be persuasive. We're told, it makes sure you are looking here at verse, um, verses 2 and 3. It says, it went in as was his custom. In other words, what we're referring to is the fact that there's a rhythmic, ongoing, this is what we do. We come together on Sunday morning and somebody preaches. When Paul leaves and goes to another city, he leaves behind somebody like Timothy who will stay there and who will make sure that when the people of God come together, we sing, we pray, we, 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 we do the sacraments, and somebody preaches the word. And, and there is a rhythmic doing of this. He says, and, and it was his custom, on the Sabbath, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. There is a compelling nature of this reasoning, a drawing out, a persuasion. He's not up there just trying to, in a, in a monotone voice, trying to convince people of something. He is persuading. He reasoned from the scriptures. He is giving arguments. He is creating logical. In fact, the word here literally means making arguments in a logical progression so that it creates a dialogue with people who are hearing it. Now, it's not dialogical. It's he is reasoning from the scriptures, but that reasoning becomes conversation as you, the hearer, hear what's preached and interact with it, and then go have discussions and grow from it. But there, it is, is to be persuasive. We are not just up here offering simple platitudes. We are pleading with you that the only hope there is in this world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want you to lift your chin Listen, I love, I, I do find joy when you, if you find joy in my preaching. But there's a story of this guy who went to, to England, and there were these two great preachers, and one of them was Spurgeon. I don't even remember who the other guy was, but they went to England. He was like, I'm going to go hear these two great preachers. And he went in, and, and as he, he listened to the first guy preach, he was like, man, that was so compelling. And he listened to the people come out, and the people came out going, oh, man, what a great preacher this guy was. Man, he was, he was entertaining. He was humorous. He drew me in. I love listening to this guy preaching. But then he went to Spurgeon's church in London, and he left the church, and this is what he heard people coming out saying there. Oh, what a Savior Jesus is. He said it was right there I figured out who was the better preacher. It's Spurgeon. We want to compel you to look at Jesus. If you don't know Christ, he is your only hope. We want to beg and plead with you to trust in him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we need to come back together every week to remind ourselves that our only hope is the gospel. I have, my life is a hot mess. And I need a weekly rhythmic reminder from somebody that says to me, trust in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Your hope has been found. You are loved. I love the prayer. I cannot be more loved if I perform well. It's one of the things I have to do every Sunday is I have to come off the stage and a little bit evaluate what I did, but realize that my acceptance before the King of Kings has nothing to do with how well I preached. It has everything to do with the sacrifice of Jesus is enough. We compel you. It has to be persuasive. So sometimes we'll talk quiet. Our tech guys, I was talking about, get really upset with me when I do this. Because 
you can't hear me on the live stream. Well, come to church. You'll hear it here. <laughs> and sometimes I'm going to get excited and passionate because I want to know my Savior. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the great preachers in the 20th century from London, wrote this. What is preaching? It is logic on fire. Hear that? Logic on fire. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. A true understanding experience of the truth must lead to this. I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately has no right whatsoever to be in the pulpit, and he should never be allowed to enter one. Preaching is going to be persuasive. Second, it is expositional. We're told that Paul reasoned from the scriptures. He opened the Bible. He read from the Bible. He, he used the Bible uh, as, as the foundational point of his scriptures, uh, of his preaching. We don't just stand up here and preach good ideas. In fact, in, in Genesis, if you're with us, you know we preach right through the scriptures. We believe in expositional preaching. In other words, here's what that means. By the way, I love what's going on with our teenagers right now. We have a fantastic youth ministry. And Scott, who was up here in the red shirt who sang earlier, is leading a new program that for our kids is called Table Talk, where he is saying, all right, you want a deep dive? We'll do our youth group, and then after youth group, hang, up, hang for another hour, and we're going to roll up our sleeves and do, like, for real theology. And this week, my daughter came home learning the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. I loved it. There's two terms. Our, some of our teenagers know what that is. A lot of y'all don't, okay? So here you go. Eisegesis is when you read the Bible and let it say whatever you want it to say. It's, it's a lot of Sunday school classes where you're sitting around a circle and go, all right, we read the text. What does this mean to you? And while I love you, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what the text means. Okay? Eisegesis is finding my own meaning in the text. Exegesis is looking into the text to try to find the original author's meaning and therefore find the meaning that God intended. It takes a little work. And, and as pastors, your pastors need to roll up their sleeves, need to get into the text of Scripture, need to wrestle with it and spend time in it so that we stand up here and we don't just preach good ideas. We preach from the text of Scripture. I want you to leave here going, I know where Mike got a sermon. I could see it. Okay? And so he preached from the Scriptures. Third, not only is it, is it persuasive and expositional, third, a sermon must be gospel-centered. The sermon must be gospel-centered. We are told here that he explained, he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Now, there's an interesting phrase here, but it's rooted in what Paul is doing. He's going into a Jewish house of worship. He's not preaching in a church yet. It's a synagogue. There's not a church in the town. He is going where these, old, these people who believe in the Old Testament scriptures are coming together to worship. And in the context there, he is proclaiming from the scripture. So he's going to the Old Testament, reading texts and showing them what the text means and explaining it to him. But from this, he is showing them that the Christ had to suffer. Now, there's a reason it's phrased this way. Because at this point in time, the Jewish people that we're talking about believed in their own self-salvation experiment that I am saved by being true to the law. If I keep the law, if I keep the commandments, if I go do the festivals, if I keep the Ten Commandments, God will save me. And they believed that God loved them and not so much for everybody else, and that salvation was a Messiah that would cast off Rome 
and make them the victorious people on planet. In other words, the way Jews saw the world at this point in time is that salvation was the end of other empires and now Israel is the great empire on earth. They were looking for a political savior. And into this context, Paul is showing that the Old Testament told everybody that the pathway for the true king was the cross. In other words, he was looking at Jewish people who would sit and feel very proud that they were better than anybody else, who would wake up praying uh, the, the, the Jewish man's prayer, God, I thank you that I am a man and not a woman, I am a Jew and not a Gentile, and that you love me more than anybody else. And he was looking at those people going, you are so awful that the Messiah had to die to save you. <laughs> That's not a fun message. What I really want to do is stand up here and go, I'm okay and you're okay. Let's just be happy together. That message will sell. Giant churches formed on that message. And the gospel must look at you and go, your sin deserves the justice of God. The Messiah had to die. It must be gospel-centered. In other words, every sermon needs to get us to the good news of Jesus. But to get to the good news, we have to go through the bad news of our need for a Savior. And every sermon must get us there, right? And so it must be gospel-centered. And fourth, it must be Jesus-exalting. He says, he searched the Scriptures. From the Scriptures, he shows them that, that, that the gospel is what the Old Testament was preparing us for, and he says, and this Jesus who came, he's the king. He's the guy. He fulfills all the prophecies. He fulfills all the promises. He is the one the whole Old Testament is about. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. The whole point of the gospel, the whole point of everything is to lead us to Jesus. Listen, our sermons are here to do one thing. We have, listen, I have one message. If you've come long enough, you're like, dude, all he talks about is Jesus. Amen. I have one message. It is not a message of self-improvement. I'm not here to give you advice on how to live your life. Now, if we look into the gospel, the gospel will help us know how to order and structure our lives. But my message for you week after week after week is an attempt to take you and lovingly through the, the message to, to grab you by the chin and to lift your eyes off of, off of yourself and to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the Savior and the King of our lives, the only hope we have in the world. That's my job, to show you Christ in all of his features and beauty. The, the, John, one of his best friends, wrote a gospel, and he literally said, listen, all the books of the world wouldn't contain all we could tell you about Jesus. He never gets old, but he is all that matters so here's Spurgeon who says this, the motto of all true servants of God must be we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Amen and amen. Listen, if somebody gets up here or you go to a church and the person opens the Bible, reads a few verses and says a whole bunch of stuff and everything the person says is true. They teach you how to be a better husband or a better wife. They teach you how to manage your finances, four steps to, to being an honest person. And, and everything they say is true. Yet, everything they say would be true whether Jesus died on the cross or not. 
You have not listened to the preaching of the gospel. You have listened to somebody who's your life coach. And here's what it does for you. Life coaching puts the weight of the law on your shoulders and gives you no remedy when you fail at it. If I look at you this morning and my whole message is, you can do it, be a better husband. And I motivate it, like I give you a TED talk that motivates you to go be a better husband or a better wife. And you go out this week and you, you blow it off the doors. You are the husband of all husbands. They should put a, put a glowing crown on you to say, here's what husbanding looks like. What are you gonna do? You're gonna thump your chest in pride and go, I got this figured out. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud. Or you're gonna fail at it, it's gonna be one more week of failure in your attempt to be the best husband or wife in the world, and now the weight of that is gonna be on your shoulder, and you're gonna sink into despair because there is no hope. And in the midst of this, this is what I have to offer. I can tell you true things about being a husband or wife, or about how to manage your finances. None of that is going to lift the burden off your shoulders. Only Jesus can do that. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's what my job is. So now quickly, I gotta tell you what your job is because this is what the Brians happened with the Brians of Thessalonians. When Paul preaches this in Thessalonica, the Jews get jealous, they get angry, they put their hands up very quickly and, and fight what Paul says. They don't have any part of it. That's the Thessalonian way. There's all kinds of ways we can be Thessalonian. We can be Thessalonian by getting angry at the message of the gospel. Going, I'm not going back and listening to that ever again, and I don't like this. And, and, and we can become hardened to the message. We, we can become Thessalonian by hearing the message and feeling somewhat entertained and finding that it was funny and it was entertaining, or you know, going to go to lunch today, and we're going to give Mike a four on this because he went way too long, and a seven on this because I felt some emotion. He wasn't that funny this week. Though. He kind of yelled too much. So a three over here. And y'all know you do that at, at, you know, Ola or, you know, right after church. You could be Thessalonian by not being discerning and listening to false teachers who are super compelling. Listen, there's a ton of people out there who are better orders than what you get here. But not all of them are doing it like Paul. Not all of them are reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And there's some of these people who are building big old giant churches. And they're off ramps to hell. Because they're not making much of Jesus. And, and so that's the Thessalonian way. We don't want to do that. We want to do it like the Bereans. So let me teach you how to be a Berean this morning. Let me show you what you need to do when you show up on Sunday morning to be ready for and interact with the sermon. Look at what it says. This is all in verse 11. It tells us that the Bereans received the word with all eagerness. So Paul is preaching. What are they doing? They are ready. They, they come. The singing prepares their hearts for it. They don't, like they show up prepared to receive. Um, they, they've paused and maybe prayed before they walked in the service and they're thinking through this. And so they receive the word with all eagerness. They are ready for what God has to say. They realize that the preaching of the scriptures is the word of God. This is one of the things that the Puritans taught, and we gotta be careful. I'm not saying that when I, what I am saying is the word of God, but the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, that God has chosen to make his voice present through the preaching of scripture and people being pointed to Christ. 
that it is his voice that you were listening for with eagerness. Second, we, we see that they examine the scriptures daily. So, so here's Paul preaching this new idea about Jesus. They don't just go, huh, forget that guy. I don't like it. Let's, let's kick him out of the city and beat him up. Nor do they go, oh man, Paul, what an orator. We're going to follow him. What they do is they go home and they open their Bible and they start reading their Bible every day. Listen, this is, this is like our interaction with scripture is kind of like, how we do meals. Sometimes we have a feast and have a big meal. That's, that's Sunday gathering, right? Sunday lunch. But nobody goes, hey, I had Sunday lunch. I'm not eating the rest of the week. We, we have to have a rhythmic or rhythm of, of intake that will make us discerning enough to know if what was preached was the gospel and from the scriptures or just some human idea. And so it is your job, your job. Are you ready for this? To hold me accountable that I'm preaching like Paul. It is your job to examine the scriptures daily and to see if what I'm saying to you is true. You're not going to be able to do that if the only meal you're getting is Sunday morning. We have to be Bible people. Opening the scriptures, interacting with them, learning how to discern so that all of a sudden you begin to hear when somebody preaches something false. You're like, wait, 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 wait. That's off. I love, like, I'll be hanging out with my daughters who are you know, my 13-year-old twins, and every once in a while they'll say, we were listening to this one guy. We don't think what he was saying was right. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Something's happening in them because our youth ministry is teaching them how to read the Bible, right? Woo, that's a win. That's how you get it. Examine the scriptures. Third, to see if these things were so. They were making sure that the gospel was being proclaimed, but when it was, they were ready to receive it. This is why our, our rhythm is that we put you in community groups to have these dialogues and conversations. Our community groups, like if you're not in a group, we want to challenge you to be in a group because we'll preach on Sunday morning, but then your group on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever night it meets, is going to sit in a circle and say, all right, this is what we heard preached. Was it so? Yeah. All right, what do we do with it? How do we live this out? How do we believe it? How do we trust it? And the fourth thing is that then they believed. When they realized that what they heard was from God, they believed. They repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus. They held on to Christ. That's your job. My job is to preach Christ from the scriptures every week. The other guys who preach are going to preach Christ from the scriptures every week. Your job is to come in here ready to hear what is said with eagerness, to respond to what is said by making sure that what we say is truthful from the scriptures, that the Bible is our final source of authority. And if it is, it is to repent of your sin, to run to Jesus, to trust in him and believe. And guess what? I'm almost done. I'm going to walk off the stage and the preaching moment this week is going to be over. But we're going to do this again next week because... I need to be filled, but I am really leaky. And I need the gospel poured in my life in a rhythmic rhythm. And God has chosen, he has chosen that is the regular rhythmic gathering of the people of God in worship and the preaching of the gospel that both reaches people for Christ for the first time and refills our tank with gospel truth week after week after week. So this person wrote, uh, as the band comes up and we're going to sing to Jesus, this person wrote a, a letter, a church guard wrote a letter to an editor of a newspaper and complained that it made no sense to go church every Sunday and listen to preaching. I've gone for 30 years now, he wrote, and in that time I've heard something like 3,000 sermons, but for the life of me I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time and the preachers are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. 
Well, this started a storm. There were all kinds of responses, and people were mad, and people who agreed, until there was one person who wrote this. I've been married for 30 years now, and that time my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. For the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. But I do know this, they all nourished me and gave me strength. I need to do my work. If my wife had not given me those meals, I would have been physically dead today. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. Preaching of the gospel. We, the elders of this church, are committed to doing all we can to do our job. This morning is your chance to respond in faith and belief. Did we preach the gospel? Did we make much of Christ? If, if we did, let your heart be drawn. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, I plead with you, come have a conversation this morning. And I won't talk to you anymore about preaching. I will talk to you about Jesus. Meet us over here. We have some, some chairs over here on the other side of these, uh, these speakers, and, and you can meet us there. But let's, let's have a conversation about who Christ is and what he can do for you and how he can change your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, Every week is this rhythmic gatherings where we come back and we believe the gospel again. We remind ourselves that I have sin in my own self-salvation experiment and I turn back to Christ as my hope. And as we sing, our lifted voices are a chance for us to, to, to rejoice and give praise to the only one who is worthy. And his name is Jesus. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word and thank you for paul who proclaimed the gospel so clearly in these two cities and i just pray father that you will just help us to be super faithful to this moment week after week and in our faithfulness to preach that it will the lives of your people will be shaped by the beautiful gospel of jesus christ your name i pray amen